Well, good morning. Oh, I need to catch my breath after that wonderful time of worship this morning. Very good. Thank you, worship team, for leading us. Well, it's been a while. We had a wonderful Advent season, a wonderful Christmas season together. And now we're coming back to the, the book of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. And today, to start off our series, we're going to end our time in the, in the Beatitudes. So prior to the holidays, we spent several weeks going through each of the Beatitudes. And this morning, we come to the last one. Let me, uh, let me step back a little bit and kind of reshape our conversation about the Beatitudes. One author compared the Beatitudes to the breaking of the sound barrier. As Jesus taught his disciples the paradigms of the kingdom of God, it was as if he broke the barrier of time and everything began operating differently. Happiness took on a new dynamic. Piety, godliness took on new measurements because of the Sermon on the Mount, because of the Beatitudes. It seems that the Beatitudes turned everything on its head. For example, Jesus begins each of the Beatitudes with the idea of blessing. Blessed are those, Jesus said. And as we have discussed, the idea of blessing could easily be translated as happy. Happy are those. True joy, true happiness is found in following Christ in these ways. Is one way we could introduce the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. But I would challenge us, and we need to be careful with this word happiness, it's, and I, I do use it for, for the Beatitudes, but I think today's idea of happiness is much different than the idea of happiness that Jesus was referring to when he spoke to the disciples on that hillside that day. Today, happiness is concerned with our contentment. Happiness is concerned with our circumstances in life. We've also turned happiness into a right, an entitlement. The pursuit of happiness in our, our constitution has turned into a right, a right to a good and comfortable life. And today, happiness is centered on pleasure and self-seeking. This pursuit of pleasure for the sake of happiness most often becomes an unending cycle that creates an appetite that is always hungry for more. That kind of happiness is not what Jesus was talking about. That's not what he meant when he said, happy are those. We also tend to measure our happiness by comparing ourselves to others. If I have more than them, then I'm happy. But if I can't keep up with others, then my happiness seems to drift away, go out the window. See, Jesus' version of happy of happiness is not dependent on those things, not contingent on those things. The blessing of the Beatitudes, the happiness offered to us, is not about feeling good. I'm going to say that again. It's not about feeling good. It's about being good. It's about being good. And I'm going to go one step further. Jesus is the one who decides what good is. It's not me. It's not my lust for pleasure. It's Jesus who makes those decisions. You see, the Beatitudes are a teaching on pleasure. God's pleasure. When Jesus says, happy are those, 
He's teaching us what it means to bring pleasure to God as his, as his people, as his family, as his kids. It also refers to our pleasure in bringing delight to the Father. Blessing and happiness are directly related to our love of God, to our identity in him and our relationship with him and our view of others through his eyes. Another aspect of breaking the sound barrier with the Beatitudes is the way we evaluate our faith in our relationship with God. Again, Jesus turns it all upside down. His measurement and ours are often at odds. So let me ask the question, what, by what do we measure our spirituality today? What do we, how do we measure our piety, our godliness? What is our definition of true spirituality? We have our measurements, we have our checklists, does someone attend church regularly? Do they tithe? Do they, do they talk about their morning devotions? Maybe they have a, a spectacular conversion testimony. Maybe they have much bolder spiritual gifts than we do. Maybe they know the Bible inside and out. Maybe they write books. Maybe they're professional ministry people. Maybe they're success in business. We have our checklist for what a real top-level spirituality looks like. And these are all good things. Again, I'm not trying to minimize those things. They're all good. But the question I asked this morning when we come to the Beatitudes is, are they the measurement that Jesus is calling us to? Does he measure by the things that we can see, by the things that we can visualize, the things that we can touch? Or does he measure by the work of the heart? The Beatitudes show us his profile of what it means to have life in his kingdom. He's looking for those with broken spirits. He's looking for those who mourn over sin in their lives, who mourn over sin in the world. He's looking for those who's, who would seek mercy and justice. He's looking for those who would be peacemakers in his name. So if you're like me, I love checklists, and I love to just go down the list and check them off. Yep, that's good. Yep, that's good. Yep, that's good. And I can nod my head and say, yes, that's all good. And it's real tempting to put the Beatitudes into a checklist form, a checklist of spirituality. But these are more characteristics of leaning into Christ than they are items to check off on a list. They are not one and done events, but lifelong growth and maturity. So since it's been a few weeks since we focused on, on the Beatitudes, I thought it'd be very appropriate this morning if we went back and read read back from the beginning again and read through the Beatitudes. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5? And I'll read starting from verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. The Beatitudes, as Jesus sat on the hillside with his disciples that day. I don't remember where I, where I read this, but one author posed the question, reading through the, the Beatitudes, meditating on the Beatitudes, he asked this question, when did the nodding stop? When did the nodding stop? You see, as we read through the statements, we nod in agreement when we consider the truth of them. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah, that's good. Yep, that's good. Got that. Yeah. We can nod in agreement as we realize that they've become a reality in our own lives, but somewhere in the reading, one of the Beatitudes stops us in our tracks, and the nodding stops. We can no longer nod in agreement, but turn our gaze to the floor when we realize that we haven't let God into that part of our life. So I ask the question again for you. When did the nodding stop? You see, the Beatitudes make for a nice wall hang. If you, if you have the gift of, of calligraphy or writing very nice, which I don't, you can write it all up and put it in a frame and you can... You can, you can do it up real nice and hang it on the wall. They're nice sayings and they're reminders of our walk in Christ. But I wonder if we don't take them too lightly. You see, if pressed into our hearts, pressed into our minds, they should call us to consider, they should call us to consider whether, whether we're in or not. If the template of the Beatitudes were laid over my life, can I say that I'm in Christ? Can I say I'm a citizen of the kingdom that he is teaching and that he's promising? Early in his ministry, Jesus had pulled his new disciples aside and he turned their worlds upside down with God's kingdom values. I pray, I pray that our time in the Beatitudes has pressed these issues into our hearts. that we haven't taken them too lightly. You see, they're not like community values or organizational values that we just post in the newspaper or post on the bulletin board and we can all walk by and we can decide whether or not we like those values or not. These are non-negotiable. And Jesus is sitting on that hillside that day talking to his disciples and he's teaching them what the kingdom looks like. And if you're going to walk in the kingdom, this is what happens to you. These are the things that will surface in your life. See, we can't walk by them. We can't take them too lightly. These are God's standards for life in him. Nowhere is this high calling seen more, more vividly than in the last two Beatitudes. By the last two Beatitudes, I mean those who are called to be peacemakers, and we've talked about this right before Christmas, those who are called to be peacemakers um, will walk in Christ, in the name of Christ, and wherever they go, they will seek to bring the peace of Christ in whatever circumstances. We are called to be peacemakers in the name of Jesus in the world. But then you come to the last, 
the last beatitude. And Jesus goes from blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. You see, the world doesn't understand this. I, I'm not sure I understand it all. The world will take our peacemaking. The world will take us as good, nice people. But the world doesn't know what to do with us when we come in the name of Jesus Christ and we proclaim his kingdom. And so brothers and sisters, Jesus promises us in the last beatitude, we will be persecuted. It comes with it. It comes with it. And so here, in, 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 one author said that we see all of, all of Scripture, all of Scripture dialed down into two Beatitudes, called to be peacemakers, and we will be persecuted. That's how we walk in the world. Following Christ means facing into persecution for his name's sake. So if you're like me, and I trust I'm not alone in this, as we read through the Beatitudes once again and refreshed our memories on what God, what Jesus was teaching, I stopped nodding a long time ago. But the call to endure persecution takes the evaluation of the Beatitudes, the evaluation of my faith, my relationship with Christ, takes that whole, that whole standard to a whole new level. You will be persecuted. Are you ready? Are you in me? And I think the nodding stops. So I join with you in hesitation to look at this idea this morning. But brothers and sisters, if it is part of walking with Christ, then we need to understand it. We need to wrestle with this calling that Jesus Christ has given to us. So let's look at it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Let me read it again. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So let's take this apart a little bit. Let's, let's take a look at what Jesus is saying to his disciples. Look at the reason for persecution. Somehow, over the last years, and I don't, I don't know when this started, the 1960s seems to be the benchmark for transformation in our culture in a not-so-very-good not so good way. But somehow, over these last years, our culture and the world has moved into a victim mentality. It seems that everyone has a reason to consider themselves a victim, some, somebody who's poor and harassed for some reason. Every word, every thought, every action, every behavior is, is filtered through the lens of who it might offend? I am offended. You're offended. We're all offended. We're all victims. That's what the culture says. So the idea of persecution takes on a very diluted sense if everyone is a victim. What is persecution then? We also define persecution differently in the first world than we do in the rest of the world. You've heard us, maybe you use the phrase, well, that's a first world problem, isn't it? We define things a little bit differently in this first world than the rest of the world does. What is merely an offense here is put somehow, somehow it's in the same category as someone who is, who is being physically abused, even martyred in other parts of the world. 
And I think we need to be careful of that. And we're going we're to walk on that line all through our time here this morning. But Jesus is very specific in his definition of persecution and what is considered a blessing in his kingdom. How, how, how do I walk in this persecution that he says I will walk in and receive the blessing that he has for me? Here's his first reason. Verse 10. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of... I'm sorry, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You see, Jesus didn't stop with persecution. He didn't say, blessed are the persecuted. He didn't say that. He said, persecution can fall in any number of categories for any cause, for any reason. But Jesus is very specific. It's persecution for the sake of righteousness. It's being persecuted for the sake of doing the right thing. So there's much debate as to whether this is simply standing up for right, for the right thing, or if this is standing up for God's righteousness. And I, I believe, maybe I'm just trying to walk a line here, but I believe it's, it's doing the right thing according to God's truth. Okay? Chuck Colson tells the story of a young man in the days of Rome, and maybe you're familiar with this. Um, he tells the story of a young man who who uh, came to Christ in this new movement that was coming across the Roman world, this Christianity. He, he came to know Christ, and, and, and I'm, I'm going to really do terrible things to this story. It's been a long time since I read it, but he was, he was strangely called to go to Rome. And he didn't know why, but he felt compelled to go to Rome. And so he went down the road. I don't know how far he walked across Italy, but, but he walked a long ways, and he just felt God was telling him, you've got to go to Rome, go to Rome, go to Rome. He didn't know why. And so he got to Rome, and he was in this magnificent city that's full of hustle and bustle and people everywhere, and it's crazy. It's just a crazy place. And, and he finds himself in a stream of people, and they wind up at the Colosseum. Have you heard this story before? Finds himself at the Colosseum. He didn't have any idea what the games were about. And he walked into the Colosseum along with the, the, the throngs of people walked into the Colosseum and he watched the games. He watched gladiators killing themselves on the, on, the, on the arena floor. He watched the Christians being marched out and being mauled by wild animals. And he was appalled, as, as I, I would imagine we are too, to think of such violence for the sake of entertainment. And so he kept, he kept standing up and he said, stop this, stop this. And people around him were mocking him, but they weren't listening to him. They were just mocking him and ridiculing him. Sit down, shut up. And so he finds himself going down the steps and he finds himself on the floor of the arena and he's running around to the gladiators and all the killing that's going on. Stop this, stop this, stop this. And the crowd got wild. The crowd was mocking and ridiculing him. This is all part of the game, they thought. And the crowd was on their feet and, run him through, run him through, run him through. Finally, a gladiator came up to him and stood with his dagger over him and, and wondering what the crowd would have him do. And run him through, run him through was, was what they said. So the gladiator ran him through. And with his, in the, in the place hushed. I, if you've ever been to the Colosseum, I've stood in the Colosseum. It's huge. I can, I can have a visual picture of this. And he's on the floor of the arena and he's, he's dying. He's just been run through. Hush fell over the arena. 
And he said with his final breath, for God's sake, stop this. For God's sake. As he lay dying on the arena floor, the, the quiet was just, you could just cut it with a knife. One by one, people started leaving the arena. One by one, the arena just emptied out. And the, the way Chuck Colson tells the story, they never had games again after that. See, he knew what it was to stand up for righteousness' sake. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. See, we're called to persecution, but we're, we're called to persecution only for the righteousness of Christ. First Peter chapter 4, verse 15 says this, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as, uh, as a meddler. I think it's interesting that he's a murderer, a thief, or as a gossip. He's got it all in the same category. Isn't that something? Stop it! Don't be persecuted for these things. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And the second thing that, that um, Jesus tells us in the Beatitudes is that we are to suffer persecution on account of him. Verse 11. Keep your hand in First Peter chapter 4. Let me read from there. Um, let me start at verse 14. Peter says this, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, and Jesus said, if you're persecuted and reviled on my account, Peter said it here. I wonder if he heard, if he could hear Jesus' voice on that hill as he wrote these words. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let me read 15 again. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. The Apostle Paul joins in in, the, in Philippians chapter 1. Let me just read it for you. Paul says this, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ... You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Philippians 1, 29 to 34, it has been granted to you for the, for, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, but also suffer for his sake. There it is again. We will be persecuted, but make sure it's in his name. And in verse 12 of Matthew chapter 5, Beatitudes, I'll go back there again. I think this is important. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. 
Here's where I want to go. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus said, you know, there's a long line of prophets, and Jesus, Jesus said it several times. You know, the, we, I, God sent the prophets to you. He sent those ahead of you all through the, your father's generations, sent them all, and you, and you killed them all. You abused them all. And so Jesus is putting, putting his disciples, he's putting you and I in the same category of those who have gone before us, who have given their lives for the sake of Christ. We're called to be different. We're persecuted because we are different, just as the prophets were. In Christ, we are to stand out for righteousness' sake. We're to stand out as called of God. The world needs to see that we are called of God. And the world will see that there's a difference. And that difference that they see in us will either draw them or it will repel them. Paul says it like this, it's the aroma of death or the aroma of life. And you have nothing to do with, with how you smell. But it's Christ in you. That's how the world perceives you. We are called to be different. James 4, verse 4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And Jesus himself told his disciples in John chapter 15, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Just as the prophets before, we are called to be different. So can, can I stand here this morning and say, if you are in Christ Jesus this morning, you're weird? Can I say that? I probably That's the only time I can ever say that. We're all weird. I know you don't have to look how far out in the world. You don't have to go far down the headlines to find out that Christians are weird. According to the world. According to the world. Now, we're not weird for weird's sake, but we do want to be different if we are in Christ Jesus. Right? It, does that make sense? Okay, somebody say so. Perhaps it would be, it'd be good to consider what persecution doesn't look like. Uh, more specifically, what persecution looks like if it's not covered by the blessing. Okay? When, when do you not get credit for persecution? Foolishness. Okay, you don't get credit for persecution if you're just acting silly in the workplace if you're doing silly things at school. You don't, you don't, get, you don't, you don't get credit for persecution if, if people are mocking you and ridiculing you because you're just acting like a goofball. If you're stubborn, if you're angry, if you're, you know, just go down the list, you don't get credit for that. That's not the persecution that we're talking about today. That's not the kind of persecution that's covered here. Wrongdoing. Um, I can't think of a specific example, but, but you might have had opportunity to sit across the table from somebody who's in jail who didn't do it. Or somebody, or somebody who's in some kind of trouble, and you know, they're just after me. It's probably because I'm a Christian. No, it's not because you're a Christian. It's because you messed up. It's because you broke a social norm. It's because you broke a law. It's because, it's because we don't act that way in this organization. You're not being persecuted because you're Christian, so 
knock it off. You're getting persecuted because you just stepped in it. And you didn't need to do that. Fanaticism. I don't know. I, I, sometimes I hesitate to, to wheel these out because there's, there's, there's a time when, when you're going to be called a fanatic no matter what you do. But I don't think God calls us to be wild-eyed fanatics who are swinging from the rafters. And I don't even know what that means. I want to say, you know, we're not called to be the guy on the corner that's preaching on a soapbox. But you know what? Some people are called to do that. So I, I want to be careful with this. But I don't think God's called us to act like lunatics out there. He's called us with order, to bring order into chaos, and uh, to bring peace where there's, where there's dissonance. Um, you don't get credit for just any cause. And I, I'm real tempted to list off a bunch of causes that you just don't get credit for. There's a lot of causes out there. Lots of causes. But not all of them are, are godly causes. Not all of them are eternal causes. I, I'm not going to say anything more about that. But we need, to choose, we need to choose things that are important to God. There's lots of good things out there, good causes, and I'm not saying to not be involved in them, but make sure that your persecution comes because you're in Christ Jesus. I was going to say politics, but I'll maybe just skip that one. And again, nobody's saying to not be involved in politics. I think we have as much a right in, our, in, our, in our, our political system to have a voice and to speak up and to speak loudly. We have a right to do that. So I'm not saying not to be involved in politics. But be very careful that if you're being persecuted for your political views, make sure that they are on the side of righteousness. Make sure that they are God-driven, Holy Spirit-prompted. Being persecuted for political views is, is not in mind here. I'm going to give one more. Goodness. Just being a good guy doesn't get you there. Of course, you're not, of course, I, I want to say going along to get along. Just being the nice guy on the block. And I've, I value that. I, and I enjoy being a good neighbor to my neighbors. I enjoy being that guy in the neighborhood that you can count on, that you can, that'll blow your driveway out in the wintertime and, and help you with this or that. I enjoy being that guy. So I enjoy being the good guy. But goodness isn't is going to get you there. It's godliness. It's walking in Christ and standing firm for Christ, standing in your convictions for Christ. One of the reasons that, that your that persecution as a good guy doesn't matter is because you're never going to get persecuted. Right? Go along to get along means, you, yeah, whatever. And when, when trouble comes along, when somebody says, hey, did you hear about that Christian over there? Did you hear what he said? Can you believe that, that he believes this or that, or he stands up for this or that? And you, as the good guy, just stands there and goes, huh, yeah, oh, yeah, I get that, yeah. And you don't say anything, you're not going to get persecuted. The teaching is clear. If we are followers of Christ, we will be persecuted. But we need to be careful that we are persecuted for the right things. 
the reality of persecution, Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Jesus describes the persecution in more detail in verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. It's natural for us to go to the most vivid examples of persecution. Seeing ISIS walk their victims to a beheading is still vivid in our minds, and I tried to pull up a picture of that. So I googled some of the images of that, and frankly, they were too awful. Couldn't show that in church on Sunday. The violence and the absolute evil of all of that. When we think about persecution, we think about those vivid images. In the last couple of weeks, we've heard of churches in China being rounded up and put in jail by authorities. A, a well-known Chinese Christian leader was, was taken away right out of his church, taken to jail. And over 100 believers from that church were taken uh, in several raids, just taken and put in jail. That's going on these days. Andrew Brunson finally was released from a Turkish prison, prison just this late fall, just before Christmas. Arguably, arguably, the best known case of persecution in the last decades was that of Richard Wormbrandt, pastor in Romania, who served multiple prison sentences for his Christian faith in communist Romania. And he served some of his time in, in the Pitesh prison where our sister church is. It's Parts of the prison are still there. I've been inside of it. There's a movie coming out. I think we, we're hoping to show the movie here at Valley Free, Tortured for Christ, the story of Richard Wormbrandt. When we think of martyrs, and we think of people being persecuted for their faith, these are some of the examples that come up. So in, in no way do I want to diminish the suffering of the church and the occasions of true martyrdom experienced across the globe. <coughs> Indeed, the, the, the case of Christian persecution and martyrdom is greater in the last century than in all the other centuries combined. So it's nothing to take lightly. But listen carefully. I think this beatitude goes beyond the vivid cases and encompasses any sort of persecution in the name of Christ. My English Standard Version says, reviling and uttering all kinds of evil as forms of persecution. The literal translation of that is to cast in one's teeth. The, the sense is throwing insults in one's faith, face. The idea is that of being pursued, chased after, harassed. Persecution can go to physical extremes as the church's bloody history records. But most often it is verbal harassment. It's sometimes audible, sometimes it's whispered, sometimes it's direct, sometimes it's innuendo. Verbal abuse and social ostracism call for courage, just like the vivid illustrations do. It may come from being marginalized in the workplace because of your faith. It may mean a student who is shunned by others because she doesn't get along with the crowd and their ungodly behavior and the, and the peer pressure. It may mean a young mom who refuses to participate in, in the gossip and she's ostracized by the group. It may mean examples such as the Jack Phillips case and the Masterpiece Cake Shop being taken to court over their refusal to enter into commerce against their convictions. 
The cases are coming fast and furious. I don't think there's a day goes by that we don't hear of some new story of Christians being persecuted economically, verbally, ostracized. I don't think there's a day goes by that we don't hear a story of persecution happening in our own country today, right here in America. Our brothers and sisters are paying immense prices for standing firm in Christ. The day may come soon, and I believe this is true, the day may come soon when we will know the level of the persecution that our brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing. Brothers and sisters, we need to get to. We need to get ready. So I fear, I fear lumping the severity of persecution all together and making it all the same. But the principle is this. Standing for Christ, standing for biblical convictions, being different from the world because of being a Christ follower and suffering the harassment and persecution of the world because of it. That's the principle. None of us embrace the idea of persecution. I don't wake up in the morning and say, boy, I hope somebody comes after me today. Boy, I hope they come and arrest me for my faith today. On the one hand, we long to be known as strong and courageous in the Lord. And we, and we long to have a testimony that says, yes, I stood fast. And on the other hand, we pray like crazy that this thing doesn't come to our neighborhood. But in whatever form it takes, it's part of God's program. And as we re- read through the Bible this year, and I know many of you are doing that, as we read through the Bible this year, we'll come across lots of examples Example after example of persecution for those who stand fast for Christ. I think of names like Noah, Abel, and Moses, and Elijah, Jeremiah, David, Peter, Stephen. They all call to mind what what Christ means when he says, you will be persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It, It calls to mind the idea that we are to set ourselves over and against the world persecution will come. That's why our anchor of faith has to hold fast. We sang about that this morning. The great hall of faith goes into detail for those who stood for Christ at great great cost. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. We're told that they looked, those who've gone before us have looked, have been persecuted, but have looked to the future that God has for them. Hebrews chapter 11, I'll start at verse 13. After listing off a remarkable list of those who had gone before us and had stood fast for faith, the author says this, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. (coughs) For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. We talk about that again. Say that again. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You see, it's no coincidence that Jesus opens the beatitude, beatitudes by promising the kingdom of heaven And he closes the Beatitudes with the same promise. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Brokenness of spirit and an unwavering faith find a reward in all that God has for us. His kingdom. 
It's a present reward of God's, God's abiding presence with us now, his power, his grace to see us through anything for right now, for this moment. But it's also a future reward of eternity in a kingdom that's been established by God and he's calling you there. And our hope has to be fixed there. When Stephen, the first martyr of the church, was being stoned, he lifted his head and he saw Jesus who was standing at the right hand of the Father. You see, the, the anchor for Stephen was in the very throne room of God. It was in Christ Jesus, the risen, resurrected Christ Jesus. When the disciples were arrested and threatened to stop preaching the gospel, they counted it a great privilege to be persecuted for Christ's sake. They put their hope and their courage in the risen Lord, Jesus Christ. And like the prophets of old, they looked forward to a city, the hope of heaven that directed their every decision, their every word. 100 years after Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, a man approached the great church father, Tertullian, with a problem. His business interests and his faith, his Christianity, were in conflict. I don't know what the conflict was, but somehow he had, a, he had a choice to make, my business or my faith. And as he explained all of this to Tertullian, he said, he ended his, his, his thoughts with this, he said, what can I do? I have to live. And we've all asked that question. And we will all be asked that question. We have to choose between this or that. So the question is for all of us. And Tertullian looked him in the eye and after the man asked, what can I do? I must live. Tertullian said this. Must you? Must you? See, for Tertullian, it was, it was clear. If the choice is between this and Christ, and whatever you fill in the blank with, if it's between this and Christ, I choose Christ. No matter the cost. So what do we do with this? Let me ask the question again. At what point in the Beatitudes did you stop nodding? If nowhere else, it's certainly here. It's here with the truth of persecution, that of following Christ. The story is told of the great preacher Charles Spurgeon, who during an especially difficult time, he was receiving a lot of criticism, and he found himself going into a depression over the criticism and it was a very dark time in his life. His wife took this beatitude, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, wrote it out in fine English print, and nailed it to the ceiling over his bed. She wanted him to know the truth of this beatitude every morning and every evening. No matter what the day throws at you, no matter what persecution comes your way, no matter what criticism comes your way for your faith, Blessed are you, for your reward is great in heaven. For your reward is great. So the Beatitudes are a new grid for evaluating our faith, for our walk with Christ. So let me ask you some questions this morning. Are you still in Christ? Are you in Christ, or are you still compromising with the world? Going along to get along. I'm asking the question this morning, am I trying to do this under my own power? But you see, persecution, perse persecution is a great separator, isn't it? Between those who are walking in genuine, living, dynamic faith 
and those who are walking in a cultural faith. Are you trying to do this under your own power? And I believe, thirdly, that there are two moments of decision regarding persecution. The first moment of decision regarding persecution is right now. It's right now. What are you going to do? See, I believe as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to think these things through before we get there. So today is the day for you to decide, will I stand for Christ? Come what may today, tomorrow, next week. Will I stand for Christ? That's the first moment of decision. The second moment of decision is in the moment. We need to remind ourselves of our commitment to Christ. We need to remind ourselves of the, of the, the grace of God, the, the truth of the word, the truth of God's promises. We need to remind ourselves of all of those things in that moment when the lion, the tiger, is breathing in your face. We need to remind ourselves, I serve a mighty God. I serve the God of Isaiah 40 that Megan read earlier. And nothing will stand between me and my God and nothing will separate me from the love of God. No, you just bring whatever you want. I stand for Jesus Christ today. So you can make that decision today. I stand for Jesus Christ. And it can be a stake in the ground for when that moment comes. I stand for Christ. So I'm wondering, are you ready to walk in the transforming power of Christ? I wonder what it was like for the disciples when they sat on that hillside and Jesus, Jesus Christ himself taught them these truths. When Jesus switched from the third person, blessed are those in the rest of the Beatitudes, and he got to this one, he said, blessed are you. Small change. He looked him right in the eye. Blessed are you. Happy are you. It got real personal in those moments. I wonder if the Beatitudes, I wonder if they stopped nodding at that point. I wonder if the Beatitudes don't leave us in the same moment of decision. The question of cost of discipleship isn't if, but when persecution is coming. The call to yield all to Christ is always before us. It's time to stop nodding. And it's time to fall on our knees and give ourselves wholly to Christ. Amen. Amen. Jesus... I believe your Holy Spirit is speaking this morning. I believe that you're calling us for those who have driven that stake of faith in the ground to, dri to drive that stake deeper today. To, to, to verbally make that commitment. Yes, I will stand for Christ, come what may. We all have a decision to make. And I believe, Lord Jesus, there, there, there is someone in this room who has not made a decision for you yet. They've been riding on the fence. They've been going along to get along. There's someone in this room that has a cultural faith that won't stand up to this beatitude. I pray, Lord Jesus, for that person, for all of us in this room today, that you will find us on our knees, that you will find us in a position of yieldedness 
of wholly giving ourselves over to you. Come what may. And I pray, Lord Jesus, as we make those decisions, as we give ourselves to you and as we enter into your kingdom and we enter into your fullness of life, I pray, Lord Jesus, that our confidence, our assurance would go through the roof like the disciples who, who came away from being persecuted, rejoicing that they had been given the privilege of suffering in your name. Lord, give us that kind of confidence and that kind of assurance. And we know, Lord Jesus, that in that moment, you will give us the grace we need and you will give us the words we need to represent you. So Lord, find us faithful today to lean into you in all things. We give ourselves to you for your glory, for your kingdom, for your purposes. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. On your way rejoicing.